You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Thanks again for joining us all this morning. Um, I always appreciate getting a chance for us to uh, chat as people are coming in too. So if you're listening to the recording uh, and not joining us here on Sunday, you guys don't get the privy of all of the fun conversation that happens literally all across the boards. We hit topics all over the place, Um, but uh, uh, so glad that you guys are here. I'm really excited that in December, um, we're going to be meeting in person uh, for Advent. Um, so for um, all of you who are comfortable uh, doing so, we're going to be meeting there at the church uh, at our regular time at 10 o'clock um, throughout Advent for Christmas. And it's a great time for us to be able to come back together after having been uh, separated. So we'll be talking more about that uh, in the weeks to come and how we're going to do our best to keep everybody safe. And then of course, uh, for, for those of you um, tuning in virtually, uh, if you'd still like to do that, um, we will be connected through Zoom um, as well. So not just streamed on Facebook, um, but it'll also be this more interactive component that we've been doing here. So you'll still be able to fully participate um, virtually on Zoom. But I'm really looking forward for those of you who are comfortable for the chance for us to uh, be together in service and, uh, and be Central Avenue Church not just spread out. Um, and uh, so of course, we'll be taking communion later in the service. Uh, as Aaron said, grab elements if you haven't done so already. And um, this morning I wanted to uh, open us with a, a brief prayer from our friends at Enfleshed. And um, it is modeled a little bit after the Lord's Prayer um, and, uh, and kind of reworked to be fitting for a community is like ours. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is our, our liturgy this morning is going to be a one-page excerpt from Rachel Held Evans' new book. And it, um, in it, she kind of talks about uh, creedal faith and the Apostles' Creed. So we're not gonna be reading the Apostles' Creed, but if you're familiar with it, it sh- runs similar to um, the Lord's Prayer and being a common piece of liturgy that's shared across um, uh, the Christian tradition, regardless of where people's uh, denominations Uh, lie and uh, something that's kind of united the church together. So I thought this was a good way to introduce that whole concept together. Um, And so would you join me in prayer this morning? Mother of us all, who dwells within and beyond, sacred is your name. May your holy vision for collective flourishing come to fruition among us. May your dreams of justice, love, compassion, and connection be enfleshed on earth. Provide us today with what we need to be nourished in body, soul, and heart. Forgive us the harm we cause as we seek to forgive those who have harmed us. Lead us away from everything that destroys and liberate us from the hands of evil. 
for you are the ultimate source of hope. Your power with exceeds all power over. Your presence incites eternal wonder. All praise to you, our comfort and strength. Amen. These words are from Rachel Held Evans' a newest book. Um, last week, I shared uh, a brief kind of intro to her thoughts, and this is um, further along in the kind of discussions and establishments of belief and how her faith came to be and transformed her. She says, I believe each time I say those words, which began the Apostles' Creed, I say them wholeheartedly. I didn't grow up in a creedal tradition, but in adulthood, I've found comfort in the fact that for millennia, aspiring believers like me have found solace amidst their struggle by reciting these words together, Sunday after doubt-filled Sunday century after sin-ridden century, always hoping for redemption and always hoping that the words might be true. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean I always believe every single word. Rather, it means I want to believe. I want to believe in the rich and elaborate story the creed represents. I want to believe that there is a good and gracious God who created all the beauty that we see as well as all we can't see and who redeems all things. I want to believe there was once a man who, like all other men, went to the grave, but unlike all other men, triumphed over it and ascended to a place we don't yet know, but someday will. I want to believe there is one holy Catholic church bound together across time and space in marvelous mystery and faithful companionship by a spirit who knit together, um, who knits together when we only know how to tear apart. I want to believe in a love so lavish that it overwhelms us. I want to believe in a faith that can handle all my questions. I want to believe in a religion that can not only tolerate, but also embrace my whole heart. So I say I believe. I believe not in spite of all of my questions, but because of them. I believe not in spite of all the theological points that I undoubtedly have gotten wrong and the ones I've gotten right, but because of them. I believe not in spite of my sins, but because of them, just as I am. And just as all those saints and sinners who came before, my own quest for wholehearted faith began with a question, how can I love God with my whole heart if my heart is desperately wicked? This question led to even bigger ones. For instance, how can I love God with my whole heart if I'm not even sure God is real? Your search might have begun somewhere else, and your journey might eventually lead you to places beyond the scope of my explorations. Good. That's as it should be. My hope is that you will hear me um, and hear from me an invitation to stop running away from the questions and ideas that frighten you the most. Questions and ideas that may overlap with some of mine, but that will inevitably be your own, defined by the shapes and shadows of your own experience and of your own God-given heart. Amen. Thanks, Bob. 
Um, well, as Aaron mentioned earlier, as we always remind, just in case, uh, we're going to take communion together. So feel free to grab something you have handy. Um, today, I'm going to read an excerpt um, from uh, a book called Disability in Christian Theology um, by Deborah Beth Kramer. Um, and uh, especially as we come into this time of communion, um, we often uh, will read a Bible passage or uh, reflection that reminds us that Communion is one of those places uh, in our Christian uh, people of God movement, life, whatever you want to say, um, where we come together and all share intentionally in, a, in the same practice. And we take it at the same time. And when we're in person, at least, we usually have the same kinds of elements. Um, and it's this coming together um, while also recognizing the differences um, and separation uh, within our own body, um, right? So we're all different. We all bring different gifts. We all bring different weaknesses and yet uh, remind ourselves of our, our connectedness um, in this time. So in that vein, um, this, this reading reminds us, especially as we think of um, different abled um, um, bodies and um, ourselves and our own limitations. And is, is it, uh, I really enjoyed it as a reflection on that concept. Um, so I hope you enjoy it too. Again, this is from Disability in Christian Theology by Deborah Beth Kramer. As Naomi Goldberg notes, images of God dictate who will feel worthy in society and who will feel, feel inferior, who will be respected and who will be despised, who will get easy access to the literal material goods of culture and who will have to fight for those same goods. Traditional anthropomorphic images of God make God look more like the able-bodied than the disabled which puts people with disabilities on the inferior and despised side of Goldberg's balance. It is the argument of many people with disabilities, especially those who have rejected the medical model of disability, that traditional and contemporary images of God are biased toward able-bodiedness and perfection, thus reinforcing negative stereotypes toward people with disabilities. When we imagine an unlimited God, there is a subtle implication that the more limits we have, the less we are like God. If God is unlimited, then the less limited are more like God, and the more limited are less like God. The notion that God includes limits counters this implication. This is relevant not only for people with disabilities, but also for all of us who experience limits to varying degrees. When we think about God, it is important to recognize the existence of normalcy of limits. How do our understandings of self and God make sense of the fact that we all experience limits, that some limits are seen as more natural than others, and that limits are much more ambiguous than we often think? Rather than thinking of limits solely in a negative sense, what we or what God cannot do, this perspective offers alternatives for thinking about boundaries and possibilities. In an age of war, terrorism, economic injustice and environmental risk, a recognition and theological affirmation of limits seems more responsible than apathy or omnipotent control and offers a perspective that can lead to hopeful possibilities of perseverance, strength, creativity, and honest engagement with the self and the others. The recognition of limits opens us to new understandings of creativity, community, and interdependence. So it's in recognition and celebration of our own limits and of the limits of God that we take our communion today.
I have a honey wheat uh, pretzel stick and coffee. And I invite whatever it is you have to take your bread and your cup at your own pace. Amen. Thanks so much for that, Max. Um, just a few uh, updates this morning. Uh, there's a park play date today at one o'clock at the Arroyo Park in Pasadena. And then later this week on the 17th is Holy Happy Hour at the Lincoln Beer Company in Burbank. Uh, that will be from 6 to 8 p.m. And then uh, as Bob said earlier, we will be returning to services in the building for Advent. So we will see you in person if you feel comfortable, uh, December 5th. Uh, and I will pass it on to Aaron now, thanks. Thanks, Angie. So prayer requests, words of Thanksgiving. Um, now is your opportunity to unmute or you can put anything in the chat column and I'll do my best to see it from there. But does anybody have anything they want to share and have prayed about today? Some weeks, not so much. Uh, with that, Max, I will hand it over to you. Right back over. Um, wonderful. Well, um, to, today for our meditation time, it's just going to feel like I'm reading a bunch, <laughs> no break in between. Um, but I have a, a meditation for us um, by the great uh, James Gilbert, um, poet writer um i, th I think te what well, technically is considered a beat poet um from that uh that i Jim yeah um i'm trying to remember the name where it comes from but i can't find it <laughs> i'll put it i'll put it in the chat when it's ready um but i i invite you to use this time um, as a meditation, as a, um, as a moment of kind of resetting. Um, so let's just, before I read it, take a breath and just find um, a sense of stillness if we can. Um, it's about, it's about joy and it's about um, happiness and the, but not in a um, live, laugh, love kind of way. Um, but you know, a way that recognizes and engages um, the realities of our world and our lives. Um, so hear, hear these words. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they're starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. 
the poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. And if we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end has magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port, looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning to hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and the goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. And with that, I hope, um, I hope you find those moments. I know that's something I struggle with um, particularly around the, the feelings of what we are to do and um, what burdens we are to carry um, and yet how we are able to find joy and happiness and fulfillment uh, not in spite of it, but um, alongside it and within it, um, and how the two work together um, to make us whole. And so I hope you can take something from that. Yes, Jason, of course. <laughs> Thanks, Max. Yeah. So today, I want to explore this progressive revelation of God that we find in the scriptures of God going from, you know, dwelling in the heavens to dwelling in a temple somewhere on earth to finally dwelling in us. There is this kind of linear progression, a, a trajectory, I would say, of downward movement where God or the divine gets increasingly close to us and then finally within us, where the merger between heaven and earth, the divine and the human is finally complete. And interestingly, this idea is found in many religions, not just in Judaism and in Christianity, <clears throat> but even in Buddhism and Hinduism and various forms of shamanism around the world, both ancient and new. The, the, the goal is often to achieve nirvana or oneness with the divine or to lose the ego, to shed the ego once and for all and merge with Brahman or the source or cosmic consciousness or whatever you want to call it. There's many different ways of describing it, and it's described in many different ways, depending on the culture and the religion or the, or the spiritual wisdom uh, at hand. But there seems to be this common thread, this common theme in many religions and forms of spiritual wisdom of you know, progressively getting closer to God or the divine until the merger is complete, be it in this life or the next. 
within Christianity, we find this idea that, that God goes from dwelling in the heavens on high as this kind of transcendent other uh, to dwelling in a temple, right, here on earth, to, to dwelling in a person, Jesus of Nazareth, what we call the incarnation, right, to eventually or finally dwelling in us, in all of us at once as a Holy Ghost, we would say. You know, the Trinity, this Christian concept of the Trinity is um, kind, of a, kind of the personification of this trajectory. There's a reason why we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in that order, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not describing a hierarchy as if the Father is the boss, Jesus is second in command, and the Holy Spirit is third. Rather, we are describing, I think, symbolically or mystically, this progressive merger between heaven and earth, God and us. The, this idea is actually reflected in the way the Bible was put together, at least the Christian Bible. The, the thinking is that the Old Testament was a revelation of the Father, the Gospels are a revelation of the Son, and the New Testament is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in that order. Uh, there's, there's this kind of linear progression of revelation from one end of the Bible to the other uh, that mimics the way we describe the Trinity. Now, granted, that's a, very, that's a very simplistic and reductionistic way of looking at the Bible, because many Christians would say that the Old Testament reveals Jesus too. But there is something to this idea of a linear progressive revelation of God in there that, that reflects what we would call Trinitarian theology. Now, I want to clarify here and say that a similar progressive revelation of God is found within Judaism, too, and within the Hebrew Bible, or what we, or what Christians call the Old Testament. And so I think we need to be very careful. I want to be very careful and not, not infer at all uh, that Judaism is somehow an incomplete or rudimentary understanding of God, and that Christianity and the New Testament is, is the final and true revelation. Unfortunately, I've heard many Christians say that over the years and other things like, um, I'm, not, I'm not interested in what the Old Testament has to say. That's a Jewish book anyway. I'm a Christian. I'm a New Testament person. Uh, out with the old and in with the new. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you said that before. I'm sure I probably did uh, years ago. The, the, that is a deeply problematic understanding. And frankly, actually, not a Christian one. Uh, that has not surprisingly led to anti-Semitism in the church. To avoid making those mistakes, we need to hold on to our understanding of the progressive revelation of God as, as more metaphorical and mystical than, than literal uh, in, the, in the way that we describe the Trinity or the way that we describe uh, the, the, the text itself, the Bible, and the way that it's laid out. Uh, and again, this progressive revelation of God is found in the Hebrew Bible too, namely the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and others. For example, Jeremiah 31 says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another, teach one another and say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all Know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. Or consider Joel chapter 2. In those days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On all flesh, I will pour out my spirit. 
even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord. Now, again, unfortunately, Christians for a long time have used these texts to argue that these prophets were speaking of Christianity and, and Jesus, and therefore Jews need to convert, right? They need to stop being Jews and convert to this other religion. No, we, we should read these texts first and foremost as part of the Jewish tradition and respect the way that Jews then and now have read them as representative of their own revelation of God and, and the progressive, you know, developing, unfolding nature of that and, and um, how God goes for them, you know, from, from dwelling just in the heavens uh, to dwelling in a tent or a tabernacle or a, or a temple here on earth to finally dwelling in the hearts of all his people. As the book of Leviticus says, I, the Lord, will walk among them and live in them. That, that, that is a very Jewish idea and not just a Christian one. And let's remember, early Christians were all Jews, right? They, they didn't renounce their Judaism or think that what they were doing uh, was in any way anti-Jewish, right? The perfect example of this, I think, is the Apostle Paul, and uh, who, who quotes this passage from Leviticus I just read in 2 Corinthians, where he says this, for we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Let's, let's hear that again. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will live in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. What does it mean? that we are temples of God. That's, that's kind of where I want to take things today, uh, not just explore this downward progressive movement or trajectory of God, you know, uh, you know, entering into us as a Holy Spirit or something. But I want to ask, what does it mean for us to be temples of the divine, temples of God? Certainly, that, that is a very high view of our humanity, right? On the surface, I think it means that we are divine and sacred and holy. Not just some of us, but all of us. To be human is to be divine. All people are the children of God. All people are the temple of God. And therefore, all people have inherent dignity and worth and value. And, and therefore, we should treat each other with the utmost respect and love and compassion. We need to treat each other like we would treat God or, or the dwelling place of God. Right? So there, there are profound social implications within this, this, this idea that we are the temple of the divine or the temple of God. But there's another understanding I want to explore here today about what this might mean. Um, I, think it's, I think it's popular today in a lot of religions and spiritual traditions, especially in new age or, or mystical schools of thought, to think of being the temple of God or, or achieving oneness with the divine as being you know, a totally good thing and, and completely, a completely positive experience of serenity and enlightenment and, and oneness. And, and yes, that can be part of it. But I also want to suggest that, that maybe being the temple of God can also, meet, can also be a really unsettling and disruptive experience, an experience of deconstruction even. I want to suggest today that maybe deconstruction, this thing we call deconstruction, shouldn't be understood as a move away from God, but a move closer to God, where we really internalize the divine as, 
an abyss of unknowing and oblivion itself. It's interesting. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, there's this idea that being in the presence of God is, is not an entirely good thing. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing, actually, where we're told in the scriptures that you can't see God. To look, to actually see the face of God is certain death, or to stand in the inner sanctuary of the temple where the, where the presence of God resides means certain death, or, you know, touch the Ark of the Covenant, the, the most holy object where God's presence supposedly resided or was held, right? even if you touched it accidentally, we're, we're told you would die. I mean, we've all seen uh, that movie, uh, uh, Indiana Jones, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And that, that scene where they open up the Ark of the Covenant, then if you look at the spirits that come out, your face melts off, right? It's a great scene, right? Here we, here we find this idea that the divine is dangerous. God is an all-consuming fire, the book of Deuteronomy says. Coming into direct contact with the divine could be hazardous to your health. And it's not just the ancient Hebrews who believe this. Religion I think has always functioned as both barrier to and mediator of, of the divine in, in, in many different faiths. The purpose of religion, in a way, is to both give us access to the, to the divine while keeping us at a safe distance from it, to ostensibly protect us from the annihilating force of the infinite. Uh, Jeffrey Kripal, a religious studies scholar I really like, talks about how sacred spaces like churches, temples, synagogues, mosques, etc. Sacred spaces have always been seen as places that give us access to the divine while insulating us from it. He suggests that we think of sacred spaces like, like nuclear reactors or nuclear power plants. They're designed to harness incredible energy and to give us access to it while keeping us safe from its deadly power. I think that's really interesting. What, what does this mean? Well, I, I think the divine can be a metaphor for the infinite, for the abyss of unknowing, for oblivion itself. One of the most prominent Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, Rabbi Rubinstein is his name. He conceived of God as a holy nothingness, as he put it, that which is without limit or end. This has been a Jewish understanding for a long time, which I think is a way of speaking of of the deepest mysteries of life and, and the chaos of existence. Religion has always been something that helps us manage these kinds of, these kinds of scary and mysterious and awe-inspiring forces that we have no control over. Religion with its rituals, its traditions, its shamans and, and its priests, these structures have as much to do with providing access to the divine while providing some control over it or some, some, some distance from it. But what happens? What happens when we lose our religion or no longer use religion to insulate ourselves from these things? Which I think is what happens when we undergo deconstruction. To enter into deconstruction basically means that we no longer are at a safe distance from the divine. Ironically, perhaps, I like to think of it this way, ironically, deconstruction means being closer to God, not, not further. In deconstruction, we are exposed to that which religion was keeping us safe from. It's as if we are now standing unprotected before a nuclear reactor and being bombarded by the radiation. And yes, that experience can be painful at first, but most of us adapt and we realize that we can handle it. It's like, um, 
it, it's like that common trope that you find in so many super, superhero movies or in comic books, or if the superhero is, uh, is just a regular person, just a normal person that somehow was exposed to radiation. And yet, instead of killing them, it gives them you know, superhuman power, right? superhuman capabilities. Think of right, the Incredible Hulk or Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four. Right? This, this is similar, I think, to what happens in deconstruction. The religious structures that were protecting us from, from the divine, from the infinite, from the abyss of unknowing, from oblivion, from, from the holy nothingness, as Rabbi Rubenstein describes it. We are now exposed to it, and it's, it's, it's painful at first, and we think maybe we're going to lose ourselves, but we adapt, and we discover, we discover that it's actually empowering. Maybe this is what Nietzsche meant by the Ubermensch, which is German for the superhuman. Perhaps this, too, is an understanding of what it means to be the temple of God, the temple of the divine singularity, as it were. Sometimes I, I think of deconstruction as being like a star becoming a black hole. And what is a black hole but the temple of a singularity, an object so mysterious and so powerful we don't even know how to, how to describe it or what to call it. So we just call it a singularity, which means it's, it's singularly unique. There's nothing else like it. When a star becomes a black hole, it hasn't really died, but it's been transformed or transfigured into something radically different and more powerful. Similarly, for those of us who have undergone deconstruction, we too have been transfigured by an apocalyptic rupturing of reality. And, and like a black hole, we have brought the abyss into the center of our being and, and nothing can escape its grasp now. It's postulated that black holes are not simply destructive, but perhaps many, many big bangs under themselves, many universes, entire universes under themselves. We don't know. What we do know is that they exist at the center of all galaxies and play a key role in galactic formation. Thus, they bring balance and, and life to the world or, or to the space around them. They are both destructive and creative, both destructive or deconstructive and constructive. They're infinitely dark and yet objects of profound brilliance as, they're, as they emit all kinds of radiation just beyond their event horizon. This is exactly how I think of us now who have undergone deconstruction. We are like black holes. We are temples of a divine singularity, that which has no limit or end. Now, I, I realize that's a bit uh, abstract, um, but that's how I like to think of what it means to be the temple of God now, at least, at least in some ways. Um, but I want to hear, what does it mean to you to be the temple of God? Does, does my understandings resonate with you? Uh, why or why not? I also um, want to ask, you know, what do you think about this, this idea of the downward trajectory of God that we find in the scriptures, where, where God gets increasingly closer to us? Uh, I'm curious, uh, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, what, what thoughts does any of this um, bring up for you? Hello. Hey, how's it going, Andre? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, uh, thank you. I, I really enjoyed the, the, the talk and that's, that's very interesting. And you brought up like a um, couple of points that are dear to my heart and that with some of them I have been struggling myself. For example, the one about the Old Testament. Uh, 
and us taking obviously outside of the we have of course we have to respect other religions and acknowledge them and not try to override them with our own beliefs that's that goes without saying but the idea of taking uh, only what's constructed from the old testament while clearly not embracing it 100 percent because the nature of the god that is presented in the old testament at least at face value i i don't i don't feel uh uh, literate enough to be able to navigate, you know, the nuances of like being able to uh, extrapolate, oh, this is a positive part of the, uh, as the side of the God presenting the Old Testament as opposed to a, a bad one, you know, like the God of the Old Testament sometimes being vindictive, sometimes, you yeah. know, punishing people. And I have been struggling a little bit with the nuance of extrapolating what's positive and not while at the same time acknowledging that there are clearly some aspects that we do not, I do not identify with. And mm -hmm. that has been like my personal struggle I'm still struggling with right now. Uh, I, with and the uh, church, us being, you know, like each of us being like a stone of the uh, temple, each, uh, each of us being a temple of God. I, uh, that's a beautiful interpretation and uh, I, I like it. Uh, one, uh, in Personally, I really like the idea of thinking, seeing, uh, you know, like the temple of God as being made by all humans. Oh, and yeah. the only way to construct it whole is to, for all of us to come together. And each of us are born with a unique gift and a unique point of view. And the only way to like construct all of it and reconstruct God is who lives in us is by all of us coming together, which obviously is very hard, especially in such a polarized world as we live in right now. But I always like that interpretation always stuck a chord with me. Uh, and in terms of like feeling, uh, you know, uh, the deconstruction, that's very, very interesting. I, uh, it, it can be disorienting, it can be scary, but I always perceive uh, the journey of self-discovery and discovering the creation of God all around us as the true path to getting to know God instead of just relying on a sense of mysticism and not question everything around us because without questioning there's no growth and without growth there's no reaching out to God so wow. yeah, that, yeah that's how I I really liked all the, all the three main topics that I parsed from your discourse yeah wow you were really listening thank you <laughs> thank you thank you that's awesome man yeah no, I know I I that was a beautiful reflection and a, and a summation of your point of view about this, this idea of being the temple of, of God and the, the challenges you, you mentioned the challenges with understanding that specifically with, with the text itself and the tradition that we've been handed from, from the Bible. It's, uh, you know, uh, there, there's no way to resolve those difficulties and, and nor, nor should there be, I, in my opinion, this, if we're not, you know, if, if by talking about what it means to be the temples of God or in a relationship with the divine is not causing us some, some problems or some challenges, then we're not really talking about, you know, what it means to be in relationship to the divine or to experience God or to be, you know, these temples that we're talking about. It, it should be, it should be clouded in mystery and difficulty and it should be a challenge. Um, yeah, I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Thank you for those thoughts. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, for me, one of the things I really wanted to drive home today, and I want to hear from others, is this idea of, you know, I think too often we're told like, oh, being, the, you know, being one with the divine or the temple of God is this kind of 
entirely positive, you know, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings of serenity and wholeness and oneness. I'm like, well, no, it's not all about that. It's, it's, it's about, you know, embracing this kind of abyss of unknowing and oblivion and deconstruction and exposing ourselves to kind of this, this, the, the annihilating force of the infinite kind of, and that's where I'm at with it. But, you know, that's not where everybody's at probably. And, and we're all at different stages maybe too. So, but anyway, other thoughts today, other, other uh, reactions or questions. Yeah, Stephen, exactly. I often when when this is talked about in church, the point of the sermon is don't defile your temple, right? <laughs> don't defile the temple of God. Don't smoke. Don't drink. You know, uh, you know what, what's the old what's the old saying? Um, don't don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't chew. And don't go with girls who do. You know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's usually the take, right? You're you are the temple of the Lord. You know. Um, yeah. Anyway, other thoughts. Good stuff. Don't listen to secular music. Yeah, right. Mm. Hey, Randy. Mm. Oh, I thought you were muted. Never mind. Oh, sorry. No, you're good. Other thoughts. What does it mean for you to be the temple of the divine or in... Uh, you know, or to be one with, with, with the divine. Is that, is that possible? You know, do you think, what does that look like for you? I guess a part of it is being led by the spirit when it talks about that. And sometimes it's something you feel in your heart, not in your head. Okay. Sometimes when I'm thinking about something and I'll feel something like right in my heart. And I know that's the right direction. I know that's not from my head. Or I, does that make sense? It's, Intu yeah, it sounds like you're talking about intuition. Yeah, yeah. This idea of trusting yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that works. Any other thoughts today? Well, we'll end a little early then. I want to thank you all for being here. Nathan and Abe, you guys came like, uh, showed up about seven or eight minutes ago. So church was especially short for you. <laughs> But I want to thank everybody for, for being here and um, much love to you all. Uh, anybody traveling next week for the holiday? Nobody yet? Well, if you do travel, travel mercies for you, travel safely. Um, we'll continue to do the virtual thing exclusively until the 5th of December, the first Sunday of Advent. We are back at our lovely building 
Uh, hopefully you guys remember the address. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, thanks for being here, everybody. Much love to you all. And we'll hopefully see you again next week. Go in peace, friends. Mm -hmm.